The death toll in Syria and Turkey continues to rise following a massive earthquake in the region this week. Foreign aid has reached Turkey, but getting help into Syria has been more challenging. I'm Aisha Roscoe. And I'm Scott Simon, and this is Up First from NPR News. Rescue worker Amar al-Salmo told NPR this week that Syria needs help with multiple disasters. Every year we, we're facing the storms, we're facing uh, the, the disaster, we're facing the bombardment. In Iran, today marks the 44th anniversary of the Islamic Revolution. But tensions remain after hundreds of deaths and mass arrests following months of protests. And FBI agents found a classified document in former Vice President Mike Pence's Indiana home. Stay with us. We've got the news you need to start your weekend. It's cold in northern Syria, and that region, which is already dotted with refugee camps and destruction from a decade of war, is now devastated by this week's earthquake. The quake has left nearly 25,000 people dead, tens of thousands wounded in Turkey and Syria. Aid is flowing to Turkey, but in northern Syria, residents say they've received almost nothing. From the first day, where's where the words? Why we are alone? Why we are alone? All people are alone. This pocket of Syria is held by opponents to the Syrian regime. For years, the United Nations has said it can't open up more aid routes to there from Turkey because of opposition by the Syrian regime and its allies, Russia and China. NPR's Ruth Sherlock was able to cross into northern Syria and saw for herself the consequences of this decision not to let aid flow after the earthquake. She joins us now. Hi. You and a few other reporters were granted rare access by Turkish officials to cross the border into Syria. What did you see? Well, we headed to the town of Jinderis, uh, and there we found scenes of just utter devastation, like whole neighborhoods collapsed. And, you know, this is a fairly small place, but the mayor there told us that 850 bodies have been pulled out from the rubble so far. Hundreds more are missing. And just to put this into context, a man who lost his wife and two-year-old child told me almost no friends came to the burial because everyone is trying to bury their dead. We were told there's 26 children that are now orphans. And here, the suffering of the civil war and the earthquake are all mixed together. So in one building, for example, a whole family died that had fled to this region after surviving a chemical weapons attack by the Syrian regime in another city. So what what sort of help are, are these people getting? Almost nothing. You know, in Turkey, I've been moving around on these roads that are gridlocked by aid trucks that are bringing in help to devastated areas, and they've received help from all over the world. But at the border crossing in Syria yesterday, it was like weirdly silent and empty. Syrians say hundreds of lives could have been saved with more help. Mohammed Juma lost his wife and two children, 20-month-old Ali and six-month-old Hussein. I met him as he stood on the rubble of the home where they died. He's talking about the moments they tried to flee, and he said his family was alive under the rubble at first, but the town didn't have the equipment to get them out. And people told us that all over Jinderis, they could hear the screams for days of those trapped under the rubble and could do nothing to help them. So what is the outlook for getting aid to to these people who, who desperately need it? 
Look, the UN has kept one route uh, open for aid supplies from Turkey, uh, but Syria says sending aid to rebel-held areas from Turkey is a violation of sovereignty. So even this one crossing has to be voted on at the UN Security Council regularly. Some say the UN could actually act on its own, but that might open up a precedent with rules loosening on violating sovereignty in other countries. Still, though, the situation in Syria is so desperate now, and this earthquake has really shown the dangers of limiting aid in this way. So the pressure is really on now for this to change. That's NPR's Ruth Sherlock in southern Turkey. Thank you so much. Thank you. The Justice Department is still on the hunt for classified materials at the homes of government officials. The FBI found one classified document at the Indiana residence of former Vice President Mike Pence yesterday after one of Mr. Pence's aides found a small number of documents there earlier this year. NPR Justice Correspondent Carrie Johnson has been tracking this story. She's here now to talk more about it. Good morning, Carrie. Good morning. Carrie, so the FBI searched Mike Pence's home for five hours on Friday. What did they expect to find? It's not so much about what the FBI agents expected as what they felt they had to do. Former Vice President Pence had told a TV interviewer earlier this year he didn't have any government secrets at home. Then one of his lawyers found what's described as a small amount of classified documents, apparently in some unopened boxes. That aide notified the National Archives and the Justice Department, and DOJ sent some agents to do a thorough and independent search just in case anything else was at the home that didn't belong there. Uh, The FBI found one classified document and six more pages without markings that were of interest. And our colleague Ryan Lucas reports Pence gave the FBI unrestricted access, but he wasn't home at the time he was visiting some of his new grandchildren. At this stage, um, how reasonable is it to think that more government officials might have some classified materials in their old files or under couch cushions or or whatever (laughs) may be. Well, yeah, we've now had three. The FBI has now found secrets in the homes of President Biden, former President Trump, and Pence. The National Archives recently asked other former White House officials to search their homes and offices, too. Now, sometimes holding on to these documents are just bad mistakes, but other times it's a crime. And there are lots of examples of the Justice Department prosecuting people for having classified materials. Those cases tend to involve people who were not in the White House and didn't have authority to decide what counts as a government secret. There are also some other factors, like having lots of documents and a clear intent to take them or share them with others, including foreign adversaries. This isn't the only contact Pence has recently had with the the Justice Department. Like, he's also received a subpoena in another investigation, right? He has. That subpoena came from the new special counsel, Jack Smith, who's investigating the storming of the U.S. Capitol on January 6th and documents found at Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago Resort in Florida. Jack Smith apparently wants the former vice president of the United States to answer some questions. And grand juries in D.C. have been very active this year. They've already heard from some lawyers in Trump's White House. But there's at least one conversation where only Pence and Trump were on the phone together. It's not clear at this point whether the The special counsel wants Pence to testify about January 6th or the Mar-a-Lago documents or both. It's also not clear whether Pence is going to agree to testify or whether he wants to defer to former President Trump and put up some kind of legal fight. Like, are you talking about possibly executive privilege? 
Sure. You know, all those years you spent covering the White House, that legal privilege covers confidential conversations a president wants to have with his close aides. In the past, in the Nixon years and more recently, courts have found a grand jury's need to know has trumped that privilege. And grand juries operate in near complete secrecy, so it's hard to know what's really happening. But we do know that former White House counsel Pat Cipollone and some of Pence's aides have been seen at the courthouse, so it feels like the DOJ has won at least some of those executive privilege fights already. So will you be staking out the courthouse to see if Mike Pence shows up? I mean, he has that pretty, you know, the gray hair. You could you could pick him out. <laughs> you joke, but there are actually interns and TV producers in the courthouse nearly every day watching the entrances and exits. And in all seriousness, we have not seen something like this. The idea that a vice president would testify willingly or not against a former president, it's just one more way this Trump administration is breaking ground. Carrie Johnson, NPR Justice Correspondent, thank you so much for joining us. Happy to be here. It's Revolution Day in Iran. Marks the anniversary of the 1979 revolution that toppled the monarchy and installed Ayatollah Khomeini as the first supreme leader of the Islamic Republic. The occasion usually brings speeches and crowds to the streets of the capital city, Tehran, and across the country. But this year's events are unusually tense. And our colleague from All Things Considered, Mary Louise Kelly, is on the line from Tehran. Mary Louise, thanks so much for joining us. Hey there, Scott. Hi, Ayesha. Tell us uh, what's happening there today, what you can see. Well, what we've seen is thousands and thousands of people converging on Azadi Square. This is, uh, that means Freedom Square. It's a big square in central Tehran. Huge rally. The president's voice, President Raisi's voice booming from loudspeakers above us. We saw kids with their faces painted with the Iranian flag. A lot of people carrying signs showing photos of uh, the former Supreme Leader, the first Supreme Leader, Khomeini, and the current one, Khamenei. Uh, signs reading, down with USA, down with Israel. We spoke with one man. His name was Syed. He's 33. And I asked, why are you here? Are you here to support your government or here to support Iran? I'm definitely here to support Iran. And I'm definitely here to tell the government that we need to do some uh, serious changes, especially when it comes to the economy. Other people we spoke to, Scott, were more hardcore, more pro-government. One young woman told me, we love Hamini. And we noted that um, the atmosphere is tense this year, and, and, and certainly that would be tied to the protests that began in September. It certainly is. I mean, it was fascinating. We got a taste of that just last night, which was the eve of, of today's big events. The government had organized a fireworks show to kick everything off. And as the fireworks started exploding, we're leaning out the windows of our hotel to listen, and you could suddenly hear chanting begin coming from apartment buildings around us as other people opened their windows, people calling through the night, echoing off, off all the buildings around us. They're saying their death to the dictator. We also heard calls death to Hamenei and freedom. As you know, Scott, this country has seen months of protests following the death of Masa Amini, the 22-year-old woman who was killed last September in police custody. Since then, hundreds of people have been killed in the protests, thousands detained, four have been executed. That's according to human rights groups. Um, so Revolution Day this year is, is a little different. I, I think, it, among other things, it's a chance for the regime to say... Everything's under control, nothing to see here, everything's calm. 
And Mary Louise, is it your impression that, in in fact, the protests are done? That it's just it's just shouting in the middle of the night now, and not and not the mass protests we saw. So, on the surface, it's the protests have been quieted; uh, they have been crushed. But we have interviewed a lot of people here who say the grievances that fueled them have not gone away. They are mad at their leaders, and this is both in Tehran, and we managed to get outside. We drove to Isfahan this week. That is another big Iranian city about five hours by car from Tehran. We talk to people, people even though they are scared to speak with visiting journalists, so to protect them, we're we're not going to use their names. But I want you to hear just a taste. This is what one woman told us when I asked about this. It's the 44th anniversary of the revolution. And I asked, 44 years from now, are we still going to be marking this or is this regime still going to be around? No, I don't think so. um, Because the youth of our country are so much awake and uh, there is the sense of freedom in them that I don't think it will last for another two years. And I will add, Scott, her father was with her. He was in his 40s back in 1979 during the revolution. He was standing, nodding in agreement with his daughter. He told us the promises of the revolution were false. Mary Louise, you you and our crew are American journalists. Uh, Can you report freely? So we are free to ask whatever we want. We've talked to a lot of people. Today at the Revolution Day events, people were eager to speak to us. They were queuing up to speak to us. We were stopped twice, once by uniformed police, once by plain clothes, uh, asked to see our papers. We showed them our temporary press ID. We were allowed to carry on. I will add, we have not been able to report from everywhere we would like to be. We asked to go to Avin Prison here in Tehran. That's where political prisoners are being held. And we were told, not possible. NPR's Mary Louise Kelly. Thanks so much. Thank you, Scott. And that's up first for Saturday, February 11th, 2023. I'm Aisha Roscoe. And I'm Scott Simon. Up first is back tomorrow with our very own Aisha Roscoe discussing her series on how ordinary people fought for a more just future during the civil rights movement. You can follow us on social media. We're at UpFirst on Twitter. And for more news, interviews, books, and music, you can find us on the radio, you know. You know Imagine. The channel. Weekend edition, Saturday <laughs> and Sunday mornings. You can find your station at stations.npr.org.